Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance, a podcast where we talk to crypto founders. This week, I'm very excited to bring on Neil Samani, the founder of Eclipse. Eclipse is a project that has been top of mind for a lot of people in recent weeks. They've made some really big announcements. And Neil's done a really great job, I think, explaining what Eclipse does and the broader long-term vision. In this episode, Miles and I will cover some of that, dig into what Eclipse is doing, explain it for listeners that aren't familiar. But I think we're also going to just chat with Neil about why he made some of these decisions and just his personal journey and philosophy in crypto over the past few years. Because I think understanding that will shed a lot of insight and color on why Eclipse is working on what it's doing today and also what Eclipse may look like in the future. So without further ado, welcome, Neil. Hey, Derek, Miles. Thanks for having me. Just to jump into it, Neil, how are you feeling overall? I feel like the past few weeks must have been really hectic for you. A lot of announcements. You've been actively writing on podcasts, on Twitter. How are you doing overall? Yeah, the last couple of weeks, it was received very well, I think, overall. I didn't expect to be on so many podcasts because what I was really planning was just announcing this is our mainnet architecture. And I think that there was unexpected support from the Ethereum community which I didn't quite realize how big it was. Because compared to Solana or Cosmos, there's key figures within Solana or Cosmos that you can look to. You can roughly gauge how big the community is. Whereas Ethereum, on the other hand, it feels like the large part of the community is like a silent majority. And you only really tap into it once you make a post that directly addresses them. So that was really pleasantly surprising. And I felt that the podcasts were interesting too, because it was folks from all sorts of different ecosystems. I think that's a really interesting point. Within Ethereum, do you think there are specific early on? Yeah, it was like Vitalik still held a sort of really large influence. He obviously made a really intentional choice to step back and create a lot of room for others. Do you think there are like certain voices today within Ethereum that hold more sway than others, whether it's core devs or people from the media? Yeah, I think the EF folks definitely still have a lot of sway. Certainly Vitalik, even the concept of a roll-up-centric roadmap, I think, carried implications that he may or may not have intended, and that resulted in a particular outcome and what companies popped up and what types of architectures folks are leaning toward. So I think that they definitely do have outsized influence, but I think that there's a lot to be admired in the way that, like you mentioned, Vitalik almost intentionally stepped back. He doesn't comment on every issue, and only when something's pretty serious or fairly big, then he'll actually write up a blog post about it. So I think that that's taken for granted in many ways. Yeah, I think in spite of Vitalik taking a public step back, like commenting on Ethereum's roadmap, being involved himself in EIPs, whenever he writes a blog post, especially one of his far-sighted ones where he like predicts certain roadmap things or evolution of wallets, it sort of inspires. It feels like an entire generation of people to like build upon that concept. And I'm curious, like, was that something? was reading a lot of that work and part of your personal journey and, and sort of deciding what to build? Actually, not as much. I never really uh, was influenced so much by Vitalik's essays in particular, though I thought that some of them were really interesting, like even more recently, the ones on overload and consensus. And like you mentioned, all the wallet predictions, I think those are good to look at. And I think that they're good rules of thumb, especially as people build their own layer ones or layer twos, they can look to Vitalik for guidance and think about how did he, quote unquote, govern Ethereum in some ways? Uh, and how did he guide that ecosystem? It didn't really influence what we were building with Eclipse, just given that 
for Eclipse, we, were, we actually pretty much started in the Cosmos ecosystem. These were intended to be app rollups at first, and we just naturally found our way back to Ethereum, given that's where we wanted to start, actually, for settlement. And we ran into some issues. We uh, ultimately went for the sovereign rollup approach. And as soon as it was feasible for us to go back to Ethereum, then we ended up doing so. I think that there's good reasons for that. And I, I think that a lot of rollups are going to end up making that migration too. You're somebody that I think writes a lot publicly. You tweet a lot. You share your thinking on topics very liberally, which I think is great. And Miles and I were doing research to prepare. And it's very clear to see your journey in crypto over the past few years. You were a quant working at, at Citadel, and then you spent time diving into Cosmos and, and Terra, and then more recently on rollups and L2s. And I think it's a very interesting journey that influenced Eclipse, but maybe we just, before we dive into specifics about what Eclipse is doing, I think it's helpful context for listeners to understand, like, what was your personal learning process and, and sort of journey into crypto over the past few years? I think to some degree, whenever I made a change like that, it was somewhat a response to the failures or what I saw as some kind of deficiency of whatever thing I was doing at that time. So with Citadel, a lot of the appeal of crypto is just the fact that because you remove those financial rails, you allow people to spin up new types of financial instruments and you can remove a lot of the inherent game theoretic issues with information asymmetry and traditional finance and things like that. So I thought that was really appealing about crypto in general. And I liked Cosmos in particular within crypto, partly for the technical properties, things like Tendermint is formally verified uh, in its liveness. There's a very clear path to scalability. You just spin up more chains. I think that the downside of Cosmos is that security fragmentation, which rollups are almost specifically designed to solve, where they can all borrow the same base layer and leverage the same economic stake or the same set of full nodes uh, where you know that you have an honest majority or something like that. I think that that's what naturally led me to rollups from Cosmos. And it just seemed like it was getting to the point where app-specific rollups were feasible. At that time, I hadn't done any serious modeling at the time of starting Eclipse. That was pretty much my path into back to Ethereum. Super interesting. I mean, I don't think there's that many people that have been very involved in the Cosmos ecosystem very early to Celestia in this modular stack, as well as having you know a deep understanding of the execution environments and specifically Solana's. And so I'm curious, is this Eclipse L2 sort of an amalgamation of the learnings that you took from each of those different ecosystems and try to put together a stack that combines the best of all worlds? That's definitely the goal. It's aspirational in that I don't want to oversell where Eclipse is right now. Like, obviously, it's not fully decentralized in the same way that the full Solana L1 is, for example. But in the end state, it's like a fully verifiable Solana, which benefits from Ethereum liquidity and security properties. So that's what we were going for. I think that, that has a lot of benefit to the Ethereum ecosystem, but also back to the Solana ecosystem and that the way that the Solana L1 is right now, it's absolutely decentralized. It is like a good set of full nodes. And I think it's really good at what it does. But it's not end user verifiable, meaning that it's not like it has data availability sampling. It doesn't have fault proofs at this point. So Eclipse is going to be doing a lot of that work to actually make it so the end user with a really lightweight device can actually verify the behavior of this very powerful system. And I think that's the technical value or contribution of what we're building. And that's what motivates why we're building this. 
That makes a lot of sense. And I think it would be great to just kind of take a few steps back to understand really how the thought process and what has driven Eclipse's design has evolved over time. And so you and I have talked a lot about app chains and roll up as a service. And that is originally where you started. And I think that's probably somewhat inspired from your early days in Cosmos and seeing the benefits of app chains. But I think it's fair to say that this SVM L2 represents kind of a pivot off of that app chain thesis. And so I would just love to hear from you as somebody who has been actually talking to customers and spent a lot of time trying to get developers building on your app chain stack with your RAS solution. What did you see out there that made you motivated to make this pivot? That's a good question. I think there were a few buckets of reasons. The first is economics. So app-specific rollups, after diving into a lot of different literature and into our own analysis and actually stuff like what you just released the other day, it became clear that they were uneconomical for most use cases. And I gave that presentation at Modular Summit, rollups as a service are going to zero. And the reason comes down to the magnitude of the fixed costs, because even a bare minimum rollup configuration requires... Things like a sequencer, full nodes for the executor, probably a verifier, if not multiple. You might have a fast finality bridge. You have indexers, probably have to do some engineering support. You have to obviously post state commitments and post those transactions on chain. Sometimes there's additional data, such as what Optimism posts regarding the L2 timestamp. So all this adds up. In some cases, it's as high as six figures, such as for an OP stack chain. For Arbitrum, it's lower, but it's still a pretty substantial amount of fixed costs for the vast majority of applications. And my friend Jake at Hook wrote this article based on some of our conversations where he modeled it out and he found that unless you're running something between 50,000 and 100,000 transactions a day, then it's not economical for you to be on an app-specific rollup over a shared L2. So that was compelling to me. The second is just that it just didn't seem necessary. The customizations that app-specific rollups offered which is primarily customizations at the execution layer, we're often able to be approximated via a shared chain. And Kyle Samani had this piece about integrated blockchains versus modular blockchains. And I was actually very sympathetic to that piece. I thought it was pretty good because a lot of the arguments made around recapturing value or creating functionality, actually, I didn't even steal Manhattan's argument further. He didn't even quite capture all the ways that you can capture functionality that you'd figure would be relegated to an app chain. But with the advent of things like Risk Zero and other coprocessors, you can even achieve a lot of expensive functionality that historically would have required its own chain. So my, this is all to say that I didn't feel like there was much reason for these app-specific rollups from a functionality perspective either. Those were the two big buckets of reasons. And I just felt like economics and functionality were the primary selling points of app chains to begin with. So if they're not really needed in order to achieve those goals, then you might as well take the convenience of a shared chain because it is a lot of work to run your own chain. And now it's subject to governance and there's just a whole process that needs to be built around it. And you're buying yourself a headache. It's kind of like launching an NFT project. And I know Backpack, the wallet, launched this NFT project, Mad Lads, and now they have to spend their energy doing that. I'd make a similar argument for running a rollup or running your own app chain. That's another thing that your engineers are going to have to be responsible for, and it's going to take a lot of effort. It's really interesting, especially the economics piece, because I think in a lot of the literature we've seen around the value prop of app chains, I think MEV and sequencer or execution fees is often pointed to as one of the biggest parts of that value prop. 
And maybe the other portions I think are interesting to think about, say like the noisy neighbor problem. So the fact that you're competing for block space with other applications and in general, just benefits of increased throughput when it's all dedicated to a single application. And of course, in Cosmos, we see things like mempool lanes now and all these application-optimized components that are really trying to make the UX better. Which of those app chain-specific benefits can actually be replicated within this general purpose L2 using the SVM? And do you think that those are really the benefits that developers care about the most? Say it's like the 80% that they care about the most. Maybe they don't get the customization for the last 20%. But is that part of this logic for moving over to a, a general purpose L2 is just opening up the amount of developers that would come on? That's right. Yeah. And the biggest one that people will cite sometimes and cite falsely is the noisy neighbor problem, because that's really an EVM specific problem where the EVM is a single threaded virtual machine and people have experienced like a mass NFT mint disrupting DeFi applications on the same chain. But that's because they're all globally ordered. Whereas when you have a parallelized virtual machine like the SVM, the Solana virtual machine, and you have local fee markets and other types of adaptations that the Solana team had to figure out themselves, given that they're an L1, then it's not really an issue anymore. And that's why when people say Solana doesn't need rollups, that's fundamentally the reason why. It's because you already get quote unquote dedicated block space. It's not dedicated in the sense that you get your own chain, but you don't need your own chain because it already solves the biggest issue that you were trying to prevent, which is congestion. So obviously, Solana blocks could theoretically get full. They're just very far from getting full. So under normal conditions, this would be very bullish for Eclipse and Solana if somehow our blocks were getting full. No, absolutely. And this is something we've chatted about before as well. But problem is really around this single-threaded EVM. And I've said this before, but I've been wrong in the past about when this real adoption would happen outside of the single-threaded EVM when folks would start moving over, given all the limitations we see. And I'm curious just to hear, like, how do you think about the timing of that and what is going to be like the main catalyst to get, including the existing apps, off of the limitations that they deal with with the EVM? So from a go-to-market perspective, the trickiness is a lot of folks do code in Solidity. So there are some tools to get Solidity working with SVM. So one way is to compile it to SVM bytecode using Solang, but it's not like a smart contract written for Ethereum can just be ported immediately that way. And then Neon is another way of doing it, but there's some overhead involved with running Neon. So we're evaluating our full suite of options there. And then from a technical perspective, the reason why we haven't seen it yet, I think is just because doing settlement for this parallelized EVM is just a lot harder. Because you have to remove the Merkle tree to really do this effectively. And what I mean by remove the Merkle tree, usually every time you execute a transaction, you update some kind of global representation of the state of the blockchain. And actually Solana has something like that too, but it's not the kind of representation that's useful for settlement. Whereas for EVM chains in general, that commitment can be used for the purpose of settlement. And it creates a single-threaded bottleneck and I'm particularly interested in, in how other parallelized chains might end up exploring the route of becoming a roll-up. It sounds like folks like Monad have kind of written it off. And the part about that that's kind of disappointing is that once you start building your L1 without the intention of being an L2, then such as what happened to Solana, you end up not including a lot of the things that you'd need in order to do settlement as a layer two. So it simplifies a problem statement, which is probably a good thing if they really do want to be a layer one. 
but it means that that tag cannot be necessarily reused out of the box. That's really interesting. And I guess maybe before diving deeper into the go-to-market for Clips, because I think there's a lot to cover there, you mentioned that the app chain approach does not make sense for the majority of applications. And you need to have a certain amount of activity, right, for the economic store. And so what is your outlook for app chains over the next, say, two to three years? Really under like, what conditions do you think it would make sense if you're advising a founder who's deciding between an app chain, potentially with the Eclipse framework, or going with the, to a general purpose L2 with higher throughput? So there are definitely still benefits of app chains outside of functionality and economics. And I think it really comes down to ownership. So I think Base is an example of a rollup owned by an organization that is functionally identical to OP Mainnet, but it made a lot of sense for Base to be the ones to launch their own chain. I think the reason why it makes sense, somewhat outlined in this piece by a product manager on my team, Sydney, but she highlights that they brought a lot of extrinsic benefit to that chain. By virtue of the fact that it's Coinbase launching the chain, a lot of developers decided to deploy there. And therefore, they should be given that upside to some degree. And they have pulled in millions of ARR. And I think at this point, it's probably still too small to be meaningful to a company of Coinbase's size. But in the long run, you know, they could 100x or something. And I think that'll prove to be more important in the future. So if you're a huge organization that can command developer activity, rather than being somewhere where you need liquidity to already exist, then that could be one reason to consider your own chain. Another reason is for the reasons of sovereignty and ownership that I was getting at before, which is similar to MakerDAO's argument, which is that they want the freedom to fork at will. But the reason why that argument breaks down a little bit is because bridges will restrict your forkability. Let's say you have some bridge with X ETH in it. Those X ETH can only be honored for one of those forks. So you, you can't like double the amount of ETH and both forks are happy. So as a result, those bridges will have outsized social influence. And you're not really as sovereign as you'd hope, even if you're your own chain. Although you do get the sovereignty to add pre-compiles and do random upgrades. If you want to roll back the chain, you can do that. As long as your community all agrees on which fork to honor. So I guess the big advantage there is that it's not that you can fork and now you have two forks running, but it's more that you're only subject to the governance of your own community rather than the governance of, for example, all of Ethereum or all of Solana. We've talked a little bit about some of your skepticism. I don't know if that's the right word around app chains and sort of how that's evolved over time. And I think that brings us to the present today, which is, we actually haven't talked about this yet on pod. Like, can you explain what Eclipse is doing, like if you can place it in comparison relative to where it lies on a spectrum that you define, whether it's with other L2s, existing L2s on Ethereum or with Solana itself. I describe it as we're taking the powerful Solana L1, we forked it, and we've added in a bunch of features to make it fully verifiable to take that powerful virtual machine and turn it into a layer two on Ethereum. So that's what we're trying to do. And relative to other projects, I think I'd probably place it relative to Arbitrum in that Arbitrum also supports Rust now via Stylus. And I think they're trying to be everything for everyone in that sense. But the big difference is that Eclipse, by borrowing the SVN, gets parallelism and it has very short block times. We borrow a lot of these innovations that the Solana folks created 
And that means that the Eclipse L2, the bull case for it, is much bigger because we can just support so much more throughput. We can always make the executor or the sequencer very beefy. And it can accommodate, for example, the equivalent of 100 EVM rollups. So I think that, that could be a future direction that we move in, especially once we get upgrades like Fire Dancer. And I obviously want to speak very concretely about where we are now. None of that's implemented. Fire Dancer is not even tested. But once it's all stable, then we'd love to incorporate those changes back into our layer two. And yeah, we'd want to basically support a lot of the same benefits that folks have historically gotten from their own EVM rollups. But now we can do it all on this one chain that doesn't fragment liquidity. It doesn't damage UX because it's starting to get really bad with users basically like misplacing their funds. They don't know what chain things are on. It's just confusing to bridge your funds over. It's slow. There's additional trust assumptions. And one day I think we'll see a bridge explode. So given all that, I think that it's best to remove all this additional complexity, which really isn't needed from first principles if you remove the assumption of using a single-threaded EVM. Most, and tell me if you disagree, like most apps and protocols have started from a place of let's go really deep with one ecosystem. So like Lido and Uniswap sort of won the hearts and minds of people on Ethereum, and they've tried to go from that and, and build another ecosystem. And I think with Solana, you have people and developers building on top of Solana and sort of borrowing things from Ethereum. You guys are somewhere in between that. And it feels like, again, it's just a unique approach. Yeah, I agree with that framing in that usually projects have the benefit of very clear, unequivocal support from one ecosystem. Whereas for us, it could be a benefit or it could be a somewhat Frankenstein's monster outcome where given that we've taken parts from different blockchains, and this is just going to become more and more the case given this modular future, it's not like clear on like who supports us. I think we have most clear support from the Ethereum community. But even there, the question is like, do you need to be an EVM roll-up and you have to really drink the Kool-Aid in order to be a part of the Ethereum community? And there were questions like that that popped up. I think the technical folks immediately understood how this is definitely an Ethereum layer two or at least an Ethereum roll-up. We can debate like specific definitions. But I think it's mostly folks that are not used to seeing a roll-up like this that will question whether this really qualifies in the same way that Optimism or Arbitrum would. So yeah, I think that's the most clear support that we've gotten from Ethereum. But from the Solana community, it's definitely been split. And I think that there are folks that, such as the leadership at Solana, they've been very supportive and they're open source maxis. And I think that they're excited to drive more adoption of the SVM and the execution layer. But on the other hand, I think you can't control how Solana dApps or Solana token holders feel. And that's not really something that I'm in a position to comment on, just given that I was never a Solana dApp writer. I never built a huge Solana protocol myself, and I've pretty much always been in infrastructure land. So I think that's something that I'm curious to understand their perspective more. I think that there's still a lot of room to win them over. Yeah, I think the Solana reaction is the most interesting to me because I remember when, let's just give an example, like Avalanche C-Chain came out. The Ethereum community was not psyched that other L1s were basically creating versions of Ethereum and trying to capture developers. But a couple of years fast forward and now looking back in hindsight, that did, I would say, like have some benefits to Ethereum and increasing the staying power of the EVM and call it like a soft export. And so I'm curious 
with your go-to-market, are you targeting Solana developers, existing projects to come migrate over? Or is this really thinking about converting EVM developers or finding net new developers? And it doesn't have to be you know, one or the other, honestly. I think that it makes sense for Solana developers to at least go multi-chain to this L2. And the reason for that is it's a different community that's going to be using this chain. For this chain, we're going to emphasize MetaMask Snaps, which is something that Drift developed as the primary wallet. We're going to be emphasizing, obviously, ETH is going to be used for gas. Everything will be denominated in ETH. And it's really targeted for Ethereum users. Whereas the Solana community typically builds for the folks. I mean, there's no way other than that, given it's an L1. But they're building for folks that belong to Solana, or they've bridged their funds over, or they use Phantom Wallet, and they're used to using Solana dApps, and they're used to the user experience of that. So I think that's the biggest difference, and I think that it makes a lot of sense for folks to go to both ecosystems for that reason. And then in the long run, I think we really want to see new apps or apps migrating from Ethereum. So for example, once we figure out how to best support Solidity projects, then I think it makes sense even for an EVM dApp to try out the SVM and recompile their contracts to our bytecode and just see how much faster it is and how much cheaper. Another con- contributor to that is the fact that we're using Celestia for DA. I think compared to an EVM rollup that's using Ethereum for DA, I think people will see that there are a lot of benefits to this approach. No, I agree. And would you say that distribution is part of this go-to-market strategy and part of the value prop if you're trying to convince, let's say, an existing Solana app to have a second instance on your L2? And that really distribution, I'm talking about referring to the enshrined bridge here from Ethereum. And is that part of the value prop as well or part of the decision framework to launch as a on Ethereum? Yeah, I'd argue that if there weren't many people using this chain, no one's bridging their funds over, we're not actively pushing anything on the go-to-market side. If we just launched a chain and just said, all right, we're done with it, then I don't think that there's much reason to deploy to it. I'd agree with that sentiment, which is that we're essentially promising the Ethereum community. I think that that's very appealing to Solana developers because I I guess in the past, in in previous bull markets, there was a lot of TBL on Solana, but it's really dwindled down. If you compare it to EVM rollups, or if you compare, obviously compared to the Ethereum L1, then Solana is like 1% of TVL. That's like a big pain point for Solana DeFi developers in particular. And even Solana games, I think that they would appreciate just the fact that there are more people using Ethereum. I think that makes sense. And that's the main part of the pitch. And I think what you're fighting against is the fact that There will be pain points, given that it does not have all of the supporting infrastructure and tooling that Solana L1 does. And this is something you're very familiar with, given that this was a pain point for every single app rollup that launched with the Eclipse framework. And so, yeah, how are you thinking about, in terms of your go-to-market, you obviously are recruiting applications, but even before that, it seems like it's crucial that you get this rollup close to parity with Solana L1 in terms of the amount of infrastructure and tooling and custodians, wallets, et cetera, et cetera. And so how much of that has been a focus for you and a focus going forward? So what's nice is because we use this rollup framework for apps historically, that means that we got the chance to dog food it. We figured out what infrastructure was missing. And now we have things like indexers, wallets, oracles, all that surrounding infrastructure we have down. So that's a plus. And maybe not quite as complete as Solana in the sense that we don't have custodians like to, like you mentioned at this point. 
But I think that's not necessarily needed on day one, especially given a lot of these projects aren't necessarily launching tokens immediately, or they already have a token launched. I'd even recommend that some of these tokens launch on ETHL1. And that might actually be the wisest thing. And they, they just bridge them over. And that's that's where the token uh, like natively lives. That's how I've been thinking about it right now. It's just been filling in those gaps and having real developers try it out, tell us where things are missing. We're pretty responsive to stuff like that. So we have Pratham on our side, who's been doing integrations engineering for a couple of years now. So he's been integrating a lot of those requests from developers. Well, that makes sense. And it kind of reminds me of a question I've wanted to ask you. I mean, you had been working on this app roll-up framework and a RAS solution paired with it. And you guys have customers that are building using these app frameworks, app-specific roll-ups. So I guess what was their reaction to this pivot? And are you hoping that they will migrate to the L2? Or do you think that these applications are good fits for the app-specific roll-ups that they're using already or test that with, and you'll continue to support them there. So a lot of apps are migrating to this shared L2. There are some app chains that they've already reached mainnet, such as what Zebic was doing with us. They spun up this Nautilus chain using our framework, and those guys are still running, and they're going to continue to run that chain, and we'll support them on that. There are cases, like I was mentioning earlier, that I just think app chains make sense. So Maker, we would be thrilled to support them. But in general, we're trying to migrate as many of those app chains as possible to the shared L2. And that's what we're doing with Wave, Worlds, a few of these other bigger Eclipse projects that we're building with us. These are folks that were really excited about having their own chain. What I don't think that they were excited about was paying that six-figure price tag. So eliminating that for them, I think, is an immediate value add, especially if they can get the same throughput and the same benefits they were getting before. So that's what we're hoping to do. And I think we want to partner with some sort of EVM provider, such as Neon, a little bit more closely. We're just starting discussions on that and seeing whether there's some bigger way that they could support these projects, given that I think that having isolated EVM block space is a very compelling proposition if you don't have to run your own chain. Well, that's great. It seems like the timing of it did work out in that it wasn't like there were too many of these customers that were already in mainnet with lots of users and were facing a tough migration. That makes a lot of sense. And then if you do have this general purpose roll-up, right, with lots of diverse set of activity and lots of different applications, the considerations around how the chain is operated are obviously different than an app-specific roll-up, where something like a single sequencer operated by a RAS provider is much lower stakes. And so now that you are kind of moving over to this general purpose framework, how are you thinking about those considerations and specifically like around the sequencer, since that's often brought up as something that could or should potentially be decentralized once you have lots of different projects that are relying on it? So in the short term, we're working with this project from the Solana ecosystem called Helios. And Helios is running the full nodes. They're running our sequencer. So they're really experienced with running Solana infrastructure or Solana adjacent infrastructure. And that was the reasoning behind selecting them. And in the future, I don't think it makes sense to have 3,000 sequencers, for example. That seems excessive and seems like it would only be required for a layer one network, given you'd also want to have stake distributed evenly among those 3,000 validators. For our case, I think a small number of sequencers under some kind of proof of authority, subject to governance if one were to exist, that makes much more sense to me. I was actually thinking about this earlier today, like who would we select 
as part of that proof of authority set. And similarly, for the bridge, as we make the bridge more hardened and we decide around like how to handle upgrades of the bridge, who'd be the right parties to select there. And it'd likely be folks that are in different countries and they're all reputable organizations. I think that's likely how we'd want to distribute it. One thing that that Lido does, they use, like obviously with Lido, it's really important them to have a distributed and decentralized, but also high-performing validator set. I think it's a combination of, of subjective valuations, but also quantitative metrics and ratings. And curious if that's something that you think, I don't know if you, you sort of know what I'm talking about, but Rated, I think just came out with the news about their fundraise. They provide dashboards and tools for Lido to help protocol evaluate validators and decide which to include. Is that something that you think could be useful in terms of evaluating sequencers in the future? I don't know if it can be reduced to a single number because it's more something that a sequencer or who we select to run a sequencer makes sense relative to the other parties. Meaning if we had like three people in the U.S., then we certainly want to have another three or four folks outside of the United States. Because what we want to do is protect against any centralized body somehow taking control of some subset of the parties involved in the multi-sig, and then we're just not able to do upgrades or worse, the bridge is compromised. So even three people in the U.S., that would require probably much more than three outside the U.S. if we wanted to do it that way. So yeah, I don't know if like a number alone is necessarily sufficient. I guess if I had to maybe clarify further, my sense is, again, you have like the gauntlets and chaos labs of the world where they're doing, they're drilling everything down. It's like a very specific number for rating new assets and collateral metrics and stuff like that. For sequencers, it's like you have both, right? You have the relative comparison to other options, as you said, like geography as one example, but you still have like the basic numbers like reliability and, and uptime and maybe MEV behavior, like stuff like that, sort of any other type of node would be evaluated upon. I guess curious, like if you think that stuff is important or maybe it just matters less than some of the more subjective elements. Those are definitely important. I don't know if we'd make the decision primarily off of that, but and also given that we don't really have any historical numbers on the uptime for some of these folks, given maybe they're not already running a validator, and obviously they couldn't have run an Eclipse sequencer before. so. That's more of like a secondary consideration, but it's definitely important, especially for short-term liveness. We don't want sequencers going down. While we're talking about maybe moving on from go-to-market, to close this note, like, do you have a dream customer or a dream use case that you'd want to build on Eclipse? And this is, this is a question that we ask to really everybody that comes on, just like in a perfect world, is there a specific team or, or sector where you want to see flourish on, on top of Eclipse? So I'd love to see a lot of DPENs, decentralized physical infrastructure networks, just because I think that those products are really interesting and I think that they can get real retail adoption. That's one category. If I had to pick a specific project, I guess I probably don't want to name one that we're talking with or one that seems realistic to deploy in the short term. So I think a moonshot would be like DYDX, given they've already gone in the direction of their own app chain. I wonder if like a really good roll-up Given that Starkware, I think at that time, didn't support the level of customization and throughput that they really needed for something like DYDX in exchange. Whereas I think the Solana VM might have a better time supporting that. 
So I'd be interested to hear what would push them over and revisit the Alchi path. But you know, I think that they're so deep into their own app chain and the reality is they actually have so much volume that an L1 makes a lot of sense for them. So it doesn't necessarily make sense. That's a good example. Pretty closely with DYDX and have seen the amount of time and work that's gone into building this Cosmos app chain. And, and I won't, can't speak for them, but they're not tied to that forever. Like if in three years, five years, it makes sense to build on another tech stack, like DYDX will do that. Like there's some projects in crypto that pick an ecosystem and a user base to win over. Like I want to build, win the hearts and minds of Ethereum. And that's like, I'm tied to that ecosystem. Let me figure out what right product is for those people. And then DYDX on the opposite end where it's like, I have no loyalty to anybody or any ecosystem. I just want to create the best product. And I think that's a really admirable quality. I think there's very few teams that think like that. Again, I think in crypto, it's so important to like have that rabid, loyal L1 style fan base to that, that will support you no matter what. So I think, yeah, just another interesting observation. Yeah, what I find interesting about rollups is like, they don't seem to have those same religious audiences like L1. I guess Arbitrum does have folks like Size Chad who are effectively influencers, but I think he's on their payroll. So I don't know if they really have that same organic meme ability that L1s do. And I don't know why L1s have that property. And more than that, it seems like L1s typically have a single figure at the head of it a lot of the time. Like Solana is obviously Anatoly, Ethereum's Vitalik. Whereas I think at Liam and OP or at Optimism, I don't think he really had, or Kelvin, I don't think these guys really have that kind of outsized single ruler influence that a lot of layer ones seem to exhibit. It's a really interesting point. I was actually one of the ones that we meant to, we're going to ask you about. Do you think there's something specific about L2s that sort of make it harder or sort of less organic to have like a single figurehead? Because the opposite view, the narrative now is L2s are the new L1s. That's where all the mindshare and attention and a lot of the, frankly, the liquidity is. So if L2s are the new L1s, like why, why can't L2 founders sort of have that same figurehead positioning? And maybe the easy answer is like, okay, it's regulatory driven. Founders don't want to sort of be in the spotlight and, and sort of be on behalf of and sort of drive protocol decisions. Like that could be the obvious answer, but I'm curious if there's sort of more different reasons. I think the biggest reason is that layer twos don't need a token. And I think that the token creates that religiosity, whereas layer one blockchains, as soon as they go mainnet, they need a token, whereas Eclipse theoretically could just never launch one. And that could be a, a viable route for us. Though I think you'd have to somehow do governance in some other way then. But that's something that I think influences the founder's influence because especially given some of these tokens didn't do so well initially and then they precipitously took off such as Luna or such as some of these other ones. Like, I mean, Solana in its peak, they were at like 100 billion FTV or something. So I think at that point, people started looking to the creator of the blockchain almost for guidance or especially when the token goes down, then they need someone to be angry at. It's kind of like a Jardian scapegoat. You mentioned governance there. Which I think L2 governance is really interesting because you know at their core, not a lot different 
than layer ones, which often do not have this formal token centered governance. And some of the decisions that are being made today in L2s are very high stakes from an economic standpoint, how to handle sequencers and revenue shares and, and how to handle MEV. And so it's quite different than traditional, say, application DAO governance. And I'm curious, you know, we've seen a lot of really interesting approaches to this. Optimism's got the dual house model to provide some checks and balances. They've clearly spent a ton of time thinking about this. And I'm curious, you know, if this is something you've given a lot of thought to as well for Eclipse and how do you see this sort of evolving? Yeah, actually, this is something that we haven't had a chance to think a lot about because we've just been focused on the mainnet launch. So this is something that we'd probably want to start thinking about over the next several months. Yeah, we want to have a much more complete thought process around governance after mainnet launch. We've talked a lot about some of the theoretical benefits to building on Eclipse relative to the alternatives. And we also know that there's a long pipeline of projects that you talked about. What was your learning process in figuring out like what is the right playbook for differentiating Eclipse and appealing to developers? Was this like a very intentional process where it was like, I want to do a scientific survey of like all these developers and figure out what they actually want? Or was it more top down like, hey, I have a very strong worldview about, I have an intuitive sense about what will appeal to people and let me go out and test that hypothesis firsthand with developers. I'm just a little curious on like what the sequencing of events was. Yeah. So there was a period when we were almost trying to be similar to Arbitrum, like everything to everyone. And we were running some EVM rollups, some SVM rollups. And if we went out and just asked developers what they wanted, I think we would have ended up in one of those Henry Ford, faster horses type situation where everyone would have said EVM rollups. And that is by and far what most people were thinking about. I think because of the mind share that OP stack generated, uh, whether it makes sense or not, whereas the SVM approach was more of a top-down thing where you have to first recognize like what the SVM is capable of. And that's something that we just partly learned through experience where we were just hammering this thing with, with transactions and it was just able to take it. And it's partly just a priori, just given the innovations that Solana Labs has been putting together on the local fee markets and Quick was like another recent upgrade to improve the reliability. So those types of upgrades, just understanding their gravity and their importance, I think led us back to the Solana VM. And then the question just becomes, how do we drive adoption of this thing? Given that by default, people might not be aware of it. They might not want to use it. So you have to almost like first preach the merits of it. And then they're like on board because developers are typically very receptive to a sound technical argument. So that was more the process. And we actually spent almost like a month as a team. And it was around the time when I made that post, RAS are going to zero, when I was basically saying to them, like, look, the economics of what we're doing doesn't really make sense. So we need to do something else. Like whether we develop an EVM rollup from scratch, some lightweight parallelized EVM. And that was a direction that we were tempted to go down. But it's relatively undifferentiated. You could try to build Mindshare in the same way that Monad has been doing as an L1. I think they've done a great job at that. But what's even more differentiated is taking the SVM, which is already a battle-tested VM, and turning that into a roll-up. So that was primarily the motivation here. It was just about like taking this virtual machine that 
we ourselves knew was superior and convincing others of that fact as well. I guess if I had to ask you to, like, to predict two, three years out into the future, for these frameworks like Arbitrum, like Optimism, they have a combination of general purpose rollups and these app-specific rollups. And it seems to me that they're trying to find different ways to create a moat around these little ecosystems. And this is first-class interoperability within the OP superchain versus non-OP superchain rollups or other frameworks. I'm curious, like if you had to predict, in two to three years, do you think the majority of activity on these EVM frameworks are going to be on the general purpose rollups? Or do you think it's going to be evenly kind of peanut butter spread across all these different app chain instances? I actually think that a lot of the app chains and app rollups are not going to graduate to mainnet. Because I think of what they're going to find the moment they try to make it mainnet, it's so expensive and they're just going to be hemorrhaging money. Maybe they'll try launching some of them and then they'll shut them down. Or maybe they'll just quickly realize this is just not economical given our current volume. So that's my thinking on what will end up happening to them. I'd argue that even things like OP stack with the super chain, I think if they did a smart thing on the BD side by getting people to try out the OP stack and just see whether people even want this before building out the entire super chain. But I think the irony of it is that while they were quick on the immediate go-to-market, I think that's tough on the medium to long-term go-to-market because the super chain will take a while to build out. Shared sequencers in general are fairly non-trivial. They can only support so many chains. Now you need governance around accepting chains into the super chain. And I know that they've put a lot of thought into that. But I think that a paralyzed chain can likely front run a lot of that and avoid a lot of that additional complexity, which is basically designed to solve problems that we ourselves created with all these app-specific rollups. So that's kind of how I've been thinking about it. It just feels self-engineered complexity. And as a result, I think it'll take a while to fully solve that. And that would be my prediction for the next couple of years, which is that on a two to three year time frame, I wouldn't be surprised if this whole app rollup ecosystem still is missing some pieces compared to shared chains. I think I agree with that. I guess maybe one more prediction, if you don't mind. I think the the options here, right, if you are on this path and realizing that the economics are not going to work, is either to go to a more performant VM or to basically go use one of these alternative, we'll call it Alt-DA solutions, whether it's Celestia or you know Eigen-DA, Avail, there's many coming out. Do you see the market becoming amendable to the Alt-DA solutions first or potentially moving over to more performative VMs? I think we're going to see a migration away from EVM because I think people start to realize that there are other options. It's one of those things where they don't know how good it is until they've tried out other VMs and they've seen how smooth and fast it is. Let me put it another way. I think we'll move away from single-threaded EVMs. I could see something like Monad catching some wind. Well, I don't know, because I feel like if you look at something like Polygon, it's already pretty cheap. Or if you look at some of these alt L1s that are running the EVM, they just turn Gath to its max settings. And I think what Paradigm's approach is, is pretty interesting, which is let's try to just rewrite the single-threaded EVM and make it as fast as possible. So let's see how fast that gets. And if it is sufficiently fast, then maybe people could still stick to the EVM in some cases, but I don't think it'll ever get as fast as something that was built to be parallelized from the bottom up. Whereas the EVM is, it's effectively retrofitted, right? You're trying to take something that 
wasn't really built for performance. It can execute, but it wasn't built for the sole purpose of superior execution. I think it's actually a really good minimal language for just like settling rollups. Ideally, it would be more minimal. There's a lot of relatively redundant opcodes and things like that. And I wonder if even one day Ethereum itself would consider moving away from the EVM. Of course, that would, that would break so many things. So it's probably unlikely and it's probably too ossified at this point. Yeah, it was interesting. I was looking at the history books the other day and saw that Wasm was considered a long time ago for Ethereum on mainnet. But I think the implication of the rollup centric roadmap was that, well, we don't need to change things at the L1 level because we have that flexibility at the rollup level. And it does seem kind of ironic that we're now years and years into rollups and we still have not seen that migration actually happen, which was actually the driving force between not implementing it on the L1. So I agree with you. I think the timing is definitely an interesting question because, as I said, I've been wrong in the past. So I think we will see this in the next two to three years. It was like the eWASM project, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, I wanted to use that when I was building an EVM for the Cosmos SDK. So it was like a way of executing EVM bytecode natively within a WASM virtual machine. I thought, oh, maybe there's a better way to do this. Just compile the solidity to eWASM. And then I have to implement whatever the execution model is for that eWASM execution layer. But the issue there was I went to the eWASM chat and like you mentioned, it's just totally dead. There's no one who cares about that project anymore. No one's building on it. So it didn't make sense to try to rely on a legacy piece of tech like that. That's interesting. I didn't know that history is kind of like the Neon Labs, I guess, coming from over to Terra or Cosmos at the time. And I'm sure, yeah, all of these things went into your learning. So super interesting. I think we've covered a lot of ground today. Just a few more grab bag and random questions. One thing I'm always curious about when I speak to founders is how they spend their time. I think Eclipse is really interesting. You guys are building an ecosystem at the same time. You're yourself a startup. There's a tight ship. And sure, things get executed. Like you're doing a lot. I see you sort of on podcasts and, and doing a ton of writing. It's, it's quite impressive. So I'm curious, what do you see your role, Neil, in, in all of this? Like, how do you, it's a big question, high level, but like, how do you spend your time? So I benefit from the fact that almost all of our team is engineers. So these guys are building the system out and they feed me a lot of really good information, which I can present more publicly and put into writings. So it looks like it's a think piece authored by myself, but it really is the collective work of folks on the Eclipse team. I don't want to diminish that. But I spend a lot of time thinking about how things will shake out. So that's one thing I think about. How do developers make their choices? Why are they making those choices? What's relevant to them? What's catching wind in the broader market? So that's one category of things that I'll think about. Another is making sure that things are just roughly holding to expected timelines, whether it's on the BD side or the engineering side. I'm fortunate to obviously have VJ, who you guys know, our chief business officer, he's like incredible on like everything go-to-market related and making sure that the adoption for the L2 is going to be successful. So I lean on those guys a lot, our head of engineering, David and VJ. Aside from that, it's really a lot of thinking just about where we should play, who we should be targeting. And then I'll still talk with a lot of the bigger apps that are deploying. Totally makes sense. I want to talk a little bit about the role of the investor here. Like you raised venture funding, I think you've raised multiple rounds, and I'm assuming have probably 
worked with a bunch of different people and, and funds at this point. I'm curious sort of your overall journey with raising venture funding and evolving Eclipse. I guess I'd put the benefits in different buckets. One being it's good to have like a big fund that can always informally promise that they can follow on and do future rounds. Because I think that alleviates a lot of stress as a founder, meaning that you don't have to worry about, oh, like, are we going to be able to raise the next round? It's more about just timing, what level of dilution the project can tolerate. But that's definitely something that I'd recommend for most people, just because a lot of people I see will take capital that doesn't scale and like their entire cap table doesn't scale. And if that's the case, then I think they're going to have to really have those funds on their cap table need to be willing to swing for them and introduce them to scalable capital. So that's the first thing. I hate like mentioning that first because it's like, you'd hope that that's not important, but it's survival. As a founder, you do need to be thinking about, do you have money in the bank to even fund the creation of the project? So that's one. Another is you want to have someone who has just operational skill. So it's good to have folks who are founders themselves before or folks who have just been through the process many, many times before. Just because on the ground, things look very differently, I think, than it probably looks to an investor. And then the last category, which is a lot harder to measure, but it's an investor with just good taste. And that's something to essentially avoid faster horses type situations where they can see you going down a route that when they're like, that's not going to be the right market to enter, or that's, that's not a desirable place to play. I don't know if there's really a way to measure that because you can't tell based on their AUM or based on their resume, but just by talking to them, I think that that's a place where a lot of smaller investors can have outsized impact because they simply have good taste. One thing you actually mentioned, which I haven't heard many talk about, is the use of capital, obviously, as a, as a weapon in and of itself. You see a lot of the L1s historically raised enormous amounts of money, huge ecosystem funds to, to attract developers and, and convince all stakeholders that, hey, pay attention to me, like I'm going to be around for the long term. And we, we talk about this internally at Reverie. It's a little similar to the explosion of capital we saw with the consumer surplus startups. I'm talking about like the Ubers and Lyfts of the world and the Instacarts and DoorDashes where VCs like SoftBank just deployed enormous amounts of capital. The valuations and the that was perhaps secondary to, hey, if we allocate enough capital to one of these projects to give them an advantage, that in and of itself, it's not the deciding factor, obviously, but it's a factor and it can help them win. Do you think that's like a fair analogy to how some of the L1 wars and, and how some of the L2 wars might play out? Yeah, I think that there's also like mistakes that can be made when you have too easy access to capital. And I think that we saw that with a lot of L1s in particular. And I think that that's why people view L1s so unfavorably, especially today. They're very expensive from one, an inflation standpoint, just in order to incentivize the validators. And there are many of them on the network. You have to just print a lot of the token. So token holders get shafted there. And two, they often raise $100 million plus, And that's money that they were often giving away in grants and investment and all sorts of other ecosystem initiatives. So I think people recognize that that was a very capital and efficient way of driving adoption. And in some cases, it resulted in ghost chains today. So when you look forward a couple of years, that adoption wasn't actually as sticky as they would have hoped. We don't want to make that same mistake in the L2 landscape. And I think 
actually folks have been more conservative in some ways. Obviously, in the bull market, a lot of L2s raised a ton of money. But I think in terms of the distribution of that capital and the capital efficiency of how it's been spent, by nature of the fact that only now we're starting to see L2 tokens pop up. Until now, there were no tokens for L2s. I think that that's been like a very positive thing for the industry, just because the token creates all these adverse incentives. It can really like lead to short-term adoption, but damage the long-term success of a project. <laughs> yeah, we don't have any plans for big stuff like that, though we are going to be doing some kinds of developer incentives. So we have the solar accelerator where we can write small checks. We can do like 25 grand or sometimes bigger than that in exchange for uh, they would actually get on weekly calls with our engineers. We would hold them accountable to some milestones. So that's one program that we do. And then we also can su provide support in bigger ways via our ecosystem partners. So these are VCs that have earmarked some amount of capital for us to deploy into Eclipse-related projects so we can support via that as well. And I know we're coming up on time, but while we're talking about the role of core teams in helping the application buildings on top, I think there's so many different approaches and ways to do this. Obviously, funding is one way. Access to the core team and like introductions to VCs and, and other partners and service providers are others. And, and I think each ecosystem, Solana, Ethereum, other L1s, other L2s all have their own unique approaches. Optimism obviously has done a lot of the retroactive funding, which I think is a little different compared to, and, and like the multi-stage airdrops to the builders, which I think is a little unique. Just again, curious your like thought process here. And yeah, like if you had any just takes overall on mistakes to avoid and, and maybe things to double down on. Yeah, I think a, a really good place to start is just with one app. Just get one app to deploy fully try out the system, get their really good feedback. And to some degree, I actually feel like Zabbik did that for us with our framework in general. I think we would have had a ton of pitfalls if we just launched what we launched with what we had, let's say, six months ago. And if we just tried to do that on day one, I think that would have been a disaster. So it's good to have someone who's willing to give you real feedback and also someone who's relatively critical too. So not, not to say that, that Zephic was critical, but I mean, it's good to have someone who's willing to give you that feedback. And we were able to dog food some of the tech with Injective. That, I think, for us, actually made a really substantial difference. And then a second thing is you have to focus on hiring as a founder and make sure you have folks that can scale your efforts. Because like you mentioned, like you, you can't really scale so effectively as one person. But to have folks that have kind of gone through it before and also know how to replicate a process in a way where you don't end up just being like single threaded. That's really important for us as well. So that those two things have given me a lot of leverage and it's made it easier to have the kind of outsized impact that we've been aiming for. That makes a lot of sense. And before this pivot, you guys were also a, a RAS provider and you were very hands-on with these applications and held to SLAs and things like that. And now that you are going to a general purpose framework, I can understand in the early days why it makes sense to be extremely high touch with these teams, make sure that they're onboarding as smooth as possible. But if you're successful, you'll have a lot more applications coming on board than you can actually provide that level of support to. And so how are you thinking about once you get there, scaling up this support or maybe not and relying on ecosystem participants to come in and really fill that gap for you? 
I think that you can surprisingly scale up to a pretty large number of applications just by having dedicated in-house integrations engineers or DevRels. I think beyond like, let's say 40 projects or 50 projects, then that might be the breaking point where we're definitely going to look into community managers, especially for Discord. And the vast majority of easy questions we're hoping will be answered via Discord. We haven't really kicked off anything on Discord. If you look at our Discord right now, we check in like once a week or something, but we're going to start to be more active there. But up until now, we've just been doing Telegram chats. Yeah, it's definitely something that we're still figuring out, but I think through the use of community managers, we'll probably bring on more integrations engineers. We don't want to lose that personal touch to it because I think that that's an advantage that we have. I think that our team is really approachable and people have enjoyed working with us when they do work with us directly. It's just that when people just get more of a mile away view of the Eclipse team, they're going to judge it based off of purely whatever they see on Twitter. And that, that can be good or bad. It certainly means they're not going to be getting dedicated support in the way that we've historically done. So we want to continue to provide that in some capacity. Last question, I think, from us. One interesting design decision that, that startups can choose is how intentional they are about culture. And I think for some startups, it's like an eye-rolly thing have a little bit of culture, but it's not the point. Just focus on execution and shipping and making something very specific that people want. Like that's ultimately what will make or break your startup. And then there's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum where it's like end user demand is the main thing, but building a culture, especially in crypto, where it's really important because that in and of itself is a shelling point to attract like-minded people, to differentiate yourselves, I'm curious, again, if you would place Eclipse somewhere along that spectrum, sort of more importantly, just that's like a framing that sort of agree with, and if that's something that you've put any thought towards. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think it makes or breaks the company. I feel the best company values shouldn't necessarily be said on record or tweeted out, because I think that people will give a gut reaction to them. But the gist is that I feel that a good company is run somewhat like, especially a good early stage company, is somewhat like a high performance sports team. Meaning that it's not really like about small talk or about, you do have fun on a sports team. You all love the sport, but it's also high performance. And that means that it's sometimes a little intense. I think at the speed of execution and making sure that nothing is slowing you down is one of the most critical responsibilities of the founder. It almost sometimes feels like when you asked earlier, like, what do you spend your time doing? When I say like, oh, making sure things are holding the timelines, that seems like something you can outsource, but it's actually not only like it, it's something that as a founder, you kind of do need to be in the weeds of everything and understand like what's holding things back because things slip through for some reason. Like it's every so often it's like, because no one has that same global optimization function that you do. And you could try to replicate that in other folks. And, and I do with obviously with the rest of leadership and folks on the team. But like everyone's responsible for, and they own certain parts of it. Whereas as a founder, you're the only person who technically owns everything. So as a result, globally optimizing things might mean that you would reprioritize someone in a way that maybe they or the person that they work most closely with would not recognize. Seems like a little bit of a tangential answer to does culture matter? But, but that's why the culture should be very hands-on it should be fast. There should be like a culture of like urgency and ownership. That's that's how I feel. You talked about things like urgency and speed and iteration. Are those traits where 
in the hiring process, you try to filter out and find people that self-select and they want to work with others? Or is it like partially that, but you also want to continue to instill that mentality with people that join? Yeah, it's something that we've built into the process because I don't even know if it's really something you can instill very effectively. Like some folks just move slower. It's not necessarily even a reflection of the companies they worked at before, because there are folks who come from big companies and they leave because it moved too slowly for them. And that's a completely valid reason for leaving. I think that the only way to evaluate it is really by working with someone directly and maybe even having some kind of small task as part of the interview process. And that's what we do for all non-technical roles. On the engineering side, I actually let David, our head of engineering, just define that process because he's hired so many people before. So I can't speak to that. But at least on the non-technical side, that's definitely something that we have explicitly a part of the process. Awesome. Neil, really appreciate you taking the time today to chat about so many things. And we're excited to see the progress that you guys will continue to make over the next few months. And I hope listeners find this interesting as well. Thank you.